Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 202 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the famous blue panic orbs that haunt Skinwalker Ranch. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. For years, researchers have talked about encountering orbs, mysterious glowing spheres that appear for no apparent reason. Different kinds of orbs are reported, and they come in different colors. In the 1990s, a variety of orbs were reported on Utah's famous Skinwalker Ranch. One kind has a particularly sinister reputation. The blue orbs seem to induce abnormal fear or panic in the family of humans on the ranch. They harassed the animals and seemingly killed three of the family's dogs. And in the years since, they've appeared elsewhere and they seem hostile toward humans. So what are the blue panic orbs? What explains them? And what is the U.S. Defense Department's UFO program discovered? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin today's mystery? We've talked about the blue panic orbs before. The first time was back in episode 36 when we introduced Skinwalker Ranch to the listeners. People can go back and listen to that episode to learn about the blue panic orbs and the many other strange phenomena on Skinwalker Ranch. Since then, we've mentioned the orbs from time to time, but today we're going to be taking a deeper dive both into what happened with them on Skinwalker Ranch and what's happened with them in other locations. For people who may not be familiar, let's do a brief review of Skinwalker Ranch itself. Where is it, and why is it significant? It's a site in the Uinta Basin in northeast Utah, where an astonishingly large number of strange phenomena have been reported. That's true of the Uinta Basin as a whole, and it's certainly true for Skinwalker Ranch. In the culture of Navajo Native Americans, a skinwalker is a kind of dangerous witch or warlock that can change shape and appear as an animal. According to local folklore, the area involving Skinwalker Ranch has been home to skinwalkers, and in light of all the strange phenomena reported there, that's what's responsible for the name. In the 1990s, the ranch was owned by a family named Sherman, although in the literature you'll often see them referred to as the Gormans to protect their privacy. Despite the privacy-protecting pseudonym, their real identities became well-known, and today they're often identified by their true name, Sherman, which is all over the Internet and other media, so that's what we'll be using here. After reporting a series of harrowing, harrowing experiences, the Shermans sold the ranch to Las Vegas businessman Robert Bigelow, who has a special interest in strange phenomena. In 1995, Bigelow created an organization known as the National Institute of Discovery Science, or NIDS, which operated until 2004, and Bigelow had NIDS investigate the phenomena on Skinwalker Ranch. I remember hearing about Bigelow and NIDS and the ranch back in the 1990s on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM radio program, though at that time its exact location had not been disclosed. 
How did more information about the ranch become public? It came out piecemeal over time, and in 2005, the year after NIDS closed, its head scientist Colm Kelleher and Las Vegas reporter George Knapp published a book about the investigation called Hunt for the Skinwalker. What was not known publicly until recently is that a couple of years later, in 2007, the U.S. Defense Department created a program to study unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, only they called them Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAPs. This program was known as the Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Application Program, or AWSAP. It was the predecessor to what was informally known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, which we've discussed in episodes 41, 70, and 161. Last year, in 2021, Colm Kelleher, George Knapp, and a man named James Lakatsky published a second book called Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, in which they covered the history of the OSAP program. And now that this information is known, we'll be discussing OSAP in an upcoming episode. But the book also contains new details about the blue panic orbs, which is what we'll be discussing today. It turns out that after NIDS closed, the OSAP program hired Bigelow to continue investigations on Skinwalker Ranch. They thus ended up investigating the blue panic orbs, and new accounts of them emerged. More recently, in 2016, Bob Bigelow sold Skinwalker Ranch to Utah businessman Brandon Fugal, who has continued his own investigations on the ranch, and subsequently, the History Channel began producing a TV series that documents some of this. The TV series is called The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, and two seasons of the show have been released so far. We'll also be hearing some audio from the show dealing with the blue orbs. Let's start at the beginning and talk about the encounters that the Shermans had with the orbs on Skinwalker Ranch. They saw orbs of various colors on any number of occasions, but there were two notable encounters they had with the blue ones. What was the first? It took place either in April or May of 1996, and it was one of the key events that caused the Shermans to decide to sell their property and move the family to another ranch. Hunt for the Skinwalker reports it like this. Terry Sherman was sitting outdoors with his three dogs, which he used to herd the cattle when the encounter occurred. He spotted an object in the distance at the far end of the pasture. The sight gave him a chill, a small flash of intense blue. Terry straightened in his chair, all pretense at relaxation gone. The dogs also took notice and began their low-pitched growls. He saw it again and it was only 300 yards away, moving swiftly along the bottom of his pasture in a north-south direction. It was less than 10 feet off the ground. When it got to the southern end of his pasture, it abruptly turned and began flying in Terry's direction. He tensed. He could see it much more clearly now. A perfectly round, intense blue orb, bigger than a baseball, and capable of very sophisticated, intelligent maneuvers. A few things to note about this part of the encounter. Terry perceived the blue orb as being less than 10 feet off the ground, traveling horizontally, and moving swiftly. It also turned abruptly. It was round and was bigger than a baseball. In the U.S., a baseball is just under 3 inches in diameter, which is 1.5 or 7.5 centimeters, so it was a bit bigger than that. 
Terry had seen blue orbs like this on his property before, and he regarded them as indicating trouble. His dogs were barking. The object was now less than a hundred yards away, and it had changed direction again. It was moving north, parallel to Terry's position. Without really thinking, he set his dogs loose. Usually, he kept them beside him when these things were flying around, but tonight he lost his patience. His three dogs took off at top speed in the direction of the blue orb. It didn't seem to react to their presence until the animals grew much nearer. Then it dipped down and descended until it was only a few feet off the ground. The three dogs began leaping at the object. They were snarling with jaws snapping. Each time the animals leaped at the orb, it skillfully moved out of the way, the jaws missing sometimes only by inches. This strange ritual began to play itself out. It was apparent that the dogs were becoming incensed with this strange object that danced out of the way at the last moment, but then dipped down again so that they could lunge at it again. The intense blue orb seemed to be deliberately teasing the enraged dogs. So the orb didn't seem to react until the dogs got near, but when they did get near and leapt at it, the orb moved away. And after a given leap was over, it dipped back down towards the dogs, making the dogs feel like it was teasing them. Terry was getting increasingly uneasy as the game of catch moved in the direction of a thick copse of trees a couple hundred yards to his south. He sensed that the orbs seemed to be steering the dogs toward the cover. A couple minutes later, the orb dipped to the ground and, with almost languorous speed, flew slowly among the trees. These snarling, eager dogs gave chase. So the orb slowly moved horizontally towards a group of trees, and the dogs followed it into the trees. Suddenly, Sherman heard sounds that chilled him to the bone, the unmistakable fear-filled yelps of dogs in mortal agony. Then, in eerie silence, nothing moved. Terry waited for his animals to return. After a couple of hours, he went into the homestead with a heavy heart. He decided not to look for them until morning. Which was not a bad idea. If the dogs scream in agony and don't come back, they've obviously encountered something very dangerous, very possibly something that killed them, and you could be exposing yourself to danger and death if you investigate immediately, especially if it's dark and you don't understand what's going on. His worst fears were realized when he went down the following morning to inspect the copse of trees. A smell of burned flesh greeted his nostrils as he dipped his head beneath the low branches. Ten yards inside was a small clearing. Tears filled Terry's eyes. Three large circles of brown, dried-out grass were in the middle of the clearing. At the center of each circle of shriveled vegetation was a blackish, greasy mess. The stink of his incinerated dogs was awful. Terry rushed out of the copse, his mouth dry and his stomach heaving. Within hours, Terry had gathered his family and finally agreed, as they had insisted, to sell the ranch. So, according to the book Hunt for the Skinwalker, the dogs were incinerated and found inside circles of dried-out grass. In the more recent book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, it describes the scene this way. The following morning, he went down to the area and discovered three round areas of very dried-out vegetation with three black, greasy lumps in the middle of each circle. The rancher presumed that his three dogs had been incinerated. The dogs were never seen again. This is a little more tentative, saying that Terry presumed that the dogs had been incinerated and that they were never seen again. However, there's also a third account, which is from Season 2, Episode 5 of The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, in which they talk to a nephew of the Shermans named Stephen. 
who was reportedly present for this blue orb encounter, and they take him back to the site, though he describes the outcome somewhat differently. We are walking down an area where we've been told about some dogs that were killed. The vaporizing dogs, right? They weren't vaporized, they were compressed into the ground. Compressed? What do you mean by compressed? Like something fell on them or Like what? something heavy smashed them. Really? What? Something actually looked like they were just squashed into the dirt. Yeah. So Stephen indicates that the dogs were actually crushed into the ground. He describes his memory of the encounter this way. From what I remember, a blue orb came bouncing down off them rocks right there. They believe a blue orb killed the dogs? Is that what you're saying? Really? You heard that story from the people who actually saw it with their own eyes? I saw it with my own eyes. Oh, you saw it? Yeah. Wow. When I was a kid, me and my uncle saw something coming down off from the mesa. As we were standing by the house, it looked like a bouncing ball, an orb, I guess you would call it, but it was like a blue color. I remember hearing the dogs whimper, and then I remember finding the dogs smashed. I don't really know what happened, but I just know that man couldn't do that. So Stephen describes the motion of the blue orb differently. He says that it had a bouncing motion and came off a mesa where there were rocks. He also gives more detail about how the dogs were found later on. I've been told about an area having been burned in the vicinity of each of the animals, like a, a circle in the ground. And mm -hmm. did that actually happen? Mm -hmm. Like they looked like something hot sat right there in the in the weeds. Really? And this is around the dog, almost like whatever mm -hmm. compressed them was hot and it burned the earth. And was it one big circle, or was it a circle around each animal? Each animal. So almost like the outside edge was hot and whatever smashed him down to the ground wasn't and just pressed him into the dirt. Yes. So that makes it sound like something had a hot circular edge compress the dogs. So what do you make of these different accounts? It's hard to say. We're dealing here with oral history and we don't have photographs or video from 1996. So we're relying on the testimony of people based on their reported memories. None of the accounts may be wholly accurate, but they do converge on the general gist of things. I like the fact that the TV show lets us hear the actual words of a reported eyewitness. But this also is an interview conducted around 25 years after the original event. And the Sherman's nephew would have been a child at the time. The brain undergoes considerable, de considerable development as it matures, and these are old memories. By contrast, the book Hunt for the Skinwalker came out only nine years after the event, and its account was based on an interview with Terry Sherman, who was an adult at the time and had an adult's perception of the events. But unfortunately, in that case, we don't get to hear his exact words. You said there was another encounter with the Blue Orbs on Skinwalker Ranch that we need to talk about. So what happened in that case? The second encounter occurred soon after the one that resulted in the death of the dogs. In this one, Terry Sherman and his wife Gwen were watching a sunset in either late spring or early summer of 1996. They were watching their cattle and horses grazing when Terry noticed that the livestock seemed agitated. He stiffened. A blue orb was flying in the tree line next to his horses. He felt Gwen beside him tensing as she too saw it. The intense blue light cast by the object was easily visible as it flew through the trees. They both watched as it emerged from the tree line and slowly flew around the head of one of the horses. 
The horse noticed it too and impatiently shook his head as if trying to rid itself of a swarm of flies. The darting orb was close enough to illuminate the animal in an eerie bright blue glow. Terry was puzzled by the fact that horse never registered alarm. Normally, the blue orbs caused extreme stress in animals. So the horse seemed annoyed by the orb, but not panicked by it, at least at this time. Suddenly, the blue object darted away from the horses and with astonishing speed moved closer to the Shermans. It stopped abruptly in midair about 15 feet above the ground and hovered silently about 20 feet from them. This was easily the best view they had ever had of the elusive blue orbs. They watched fascinated as the object hung in the air, apparently defying the laws of gravity. So the orb is described as moving horizontally towards the Shermans at a rapid rate of speed and then stopping and just floating in the air. Here in Hunt for the Skinwalker, it says that the orb stopped about 20 feet from them, though in Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, it says it was about 10 feet. Both would be reasonable estimates as they're within a factor of two of each other, and people make different estimates at different times. In any event, it was close, and they got a clear look at the orb. The exterior of the orb was a clear, hard shell, not unlike glass. It was maybe two or three times the size of a baseball. And inside the glass-like exterior moved a swirling, intensely blue substance. It seemed to Terry like a liquid beginning to boil, a nearly bubbling, incandescent blue fluid. He could hear a faint crackling sound from the object, like static electricity sometimes makes. Two to three times the size of a baseball would mean six to nine inches, or between 15 and 22 centimeters in diameter. Skinwalkers at the Pentagon says that it was about the size of a baseball, though, but that's again likely due to different estimates over time. Both of the books say that the orb looked like it was made out of glass or some glass-like substance, and that it made a crackling electrical sound. In Hunt for the Skinwalker, it says that there was a swirly, bubbling fluid inside the orb, and in Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, it says that it looked like there were two different bubbling blue liquids mixing and rotating inside. Both books report that it had an effect on the Sherman's emotions. According to Hunt for the Skinwalker, As Terry watched this amazing spectacle, the hair on the back of his neck rose. He could feel a wave of deep, naked fear washing over him. He felt paralyzed with the deepest, most visceral fear he had ever known. It was overwhelming. Wild animals had trapped Terry. He, he had been close to death, but he had never felt anything like the intensity of the terror he felt now. He knew Gwen was feeling the same because she had begun to hyperventilate. She gasped deeply and her body had begun to shake. Terry felt like he was going to have a seizure. But then they frightened the orb off. Suddenly, Gwen, who was whimpering with terror, turned on her flashlight. The effect was instantaneous. The blue orb darted abruptly into the branches of the nearby tree as if trying to avoid the flashlight's beam. It maneuvered effortlessly through the branches at high speed. It was obvious to them that the orb was under intelligent control. Then, as abruptly as the object had darted into the trees, it suddenly shot out of sight behind their homestead. After this, they began to recover from the extreme emotions aroused in the encounter. Gwen sank to her knees, weeping. Terry also felt weak. His legs could barely hold him. But the overwhelming, paralyzing terror he had felt had vanished. It was like a switch had been abruptly thrown. 
The after-effects of that bolt of adrenaline were obvious. Perspiration poured from his body, and his legs and arms began to shake violently. He, too, sank to his knees and put his arms around his violently trembling wife. She continued weeping. Afterwards, Terry concluded that the orb had somehow induced fear in both of them, and that it was not a normal reaction. Then, later that evening, they had an additional encounter. Two hours later, Terry and Gwen were in their living room, recovering but exhausted and emotionally spent. Out of the corner of his eye, Terry noticed the signature blue glow outside the window. He stiffened. Gwen gasped in alarm. Both of them watched as it moved slowly past their window, flying lazily. The lights in the living room dimmed as the blue orb flew past, leaving a murky yellow glow inside the house. As the incandescent blue sphere traversed the end of their homestead, the lights inside the house brightened again as if on a dimmer switch. But there were no dimmer switches in their home. They both rushed to the front door in time to see the blue glow floating lazily over the ridge, about a hundred yards away. Their bright yard light had also dimmed as the orb moved past, and it gradually regained its normal brightness. Here, the orb is described as moving horizontally and traveling at a slow rate of speed. It also apparently had an effect on the electrical systems nearby as it caused the lights in their living room to dim and their yard lights as well. While Terry had seen the blue orbs on his property on other occasions, as well as orbs of other colors, these were the most significant encounters. We mentioned earlier that the Defense Intelligence Agency's OSAP UFO program signed a contract with Nevada businessman Bob Bigelow to investigate UFOs and other strange phenomena for them. When did this happen, and how did it relate to the Blue Orbs? They signed the contract in late 2008 with Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, or BASS. Afterwards, BASS investigated things that had happened in Skinwalker Ranch, including Blue Orbs, and similar things that had happened elsewhere. For example, they heard of a Blue Orb encounter that had occurred up near the city of Bend, Oregon in 2005, so they sent investigators to interview the two people who were involved. In Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, they are described as a 48-year-old biotechnologist and his daughter. The book calls the biotechnologist Ron Becker, though that's not his real name. It's to protect his privacy. Reportedly, he and his daughter were driving on Highway 20, known as the Central Oregon Highway, on May 1st, 2005. It was at night, so it was dark outside the car. The father was driving, and the daughter was in the passenger seat. Becker's daughter was in the passenger seat with the seat back in the reclined position when she noticed three bright blue objects flying about a hundred yards away in a nearby field. The objects were making random zigzags around each other with no apparent purpose. The daughter later described this activity as the three orbs playing together. As the younger Becker watched in puzzlement, the three bright blue orbs began moving quickly toward the car. Within seconds, two of the three small round objects flew directly through the vehicle. They entered through the left or driver's side window. One passed across the dashboard in front of father and daughter before exiting the car through the passenger's window. As the younger Becker watched in horror, the second orb entered the upper left arm of the father, passed through his upper body at chest level, and exited his body at the level of his bicep. The daughter had witnessed the exit of the blue orb from her father's shoulder. So here we have an orb capable of passing through physical objects, like the father's chest. 
As the bass scientist debriefed Becker, he remembered feeling a sense of movement as the blue orb entered his body. He knew that something bizarre was occurring. Everything seemed to become blurred and hazy. He recalled being fixated on the horrified expression on his daughter's face. After the orb exited his right upper arm, he looked up in time to see the bright blue ball moving away from his car at a distance of about a 100 feet. He judged it to be about the size of a softball, clearly shaped like a sphere with sharply defined outlines. In a follow-up interview, the younger Becker remembered that the two blue balls that entered the car were slightly different shades of blue, one darker than the other. In the U.S., a softball is slightly larger than a baseball. Softballs have a diameter of about 3.8 inches or 10 centimeters. That's consistent with the descriptions of the blue orbs from Skinwalker Ranch. Also, interestingly, the two orbs that entered the car were different shades of blue. Within minutes of the incident, while still driving quickly, Becker began to feel ill, nausea and general malaise, and very scared too scared to stop driving. According to both occupants, something strange occurred during that time. The 45-minute segment of the trip to Bend appeared to take three hours. So Becker began to feel ill. I'm not sure what it means that the 45-minute drive they had ahead of them appeared to take three hours. That could mean that they had two hours of missing time, which sometimes is reported in UFO cases, or it could mean that it just seemed to take a really long time, perhaps because the dad was feeling ill and they were both freaked out by the experience, so they were hyper-focused on wanting the trip to be over, and time seems to crawl by when you really want something to be over because of how frustrating it is to wait. As they say, a watched kettle never boils. Eventually, they arrived at his brother's house, and because Ron was attending a conference in the morning, he went straight to bed. While asleep, Becker had a very unusual and vivid dream. He recalled an unusual face surrounded by light saying to him, Okay, we are going to fix this, while a finger in front of the face applied pressure on his left shoulder. Four hours later, he awoke feeling refreshed and rejuvenated. So Becker had an unusual dream, but there's not necessarily that much to make out of that. He felt better in the morning, but... He then left his brother's house to attend the weekend-long biotechnology conference as scheduled. But Becker remembered feeling dizzy and at times nauseous during the meetings. Shortly after the conference ended, he noticed an intense red rash on the left side of his face. He also noticed that he was losing hair from the front left side of his head, hairline, and eyebrow. Becker became progressively unwell. Even his ankles were swelling. During this period, he reported diminishing visual acuity in his left eye, as well as decreased hearing in his left ear. Becker thus experienced quite a number of symptoms, and these will be familiar to many listeners, so I won't keep you in suspense. They sound like the symptoms of acute radiation syndrome, also known as radiation sickness. Over time, Becker also began to gain weight. Despite trying hard not to, he gained 45 pounds, going from 155 pounds to 200 pounds. He also lacked energy and slept a great deal, and he didn't recover from this really for like three years until 2008. Needless to say, they took him to the doctor and a lot during that time, and the doctor did a lot of blood tests. That means that Becker's case is extremely well documented because they could compare his post-orb blood work to tests that had been done on him before the encounter. 
His most serious medical complaint was a diagnosis of ductal carcinoma in situ, DCIS, in his left chest in February 2007. Although extremely rare in men, Becker's physician was certain of the diagnosis. Ductal carcinoma in situ is considered an early stage of breast cancer, and it is indeed very rare in men. He underwent surgery on May 14, 2007. A biopsy of his lymph nodes indicated that the cancer had not metastasized. He received no chemotherapy or radiation treatments following his surgery. A whole-body scan done in July 2007 revealed no apparent metastases, thus improving his long-term survival outlook. By late 2008, Becker reported that his health appeared to be slowly improving, although he still complained of moderate to severe pain and almost continuous fatigue. In addition to the breast cancer, his blood work showed anomalies. There was a dramatic change in his white blood cell counts following the incident. His lymphocyte count progressively decreased while his neutrophil count progressively increased over the two-year period following the incident, and neither type of blood cells showed any sign of returning to normal levels even two years after the Blue Orb incident. And you have to wonder about whether the orb encounter was what caused the cancer, especially since the orb passed through the chest, entering on the left side, and that was where the cancer was found. It was the opinion of the consulting Bass physicians, both of whom are experienced diagnosticians, that the 18-month time frame for the development of this aggressive cancer, beginning with the incident in May 2005 and culminating in the diagnosis in February 2007, is biologically consistent with a cause-and-effect temporal relationship. Development of DCIS in line with most, most cancers has been correlated with a wide variety of environmental insults, including radiation. But the effects on the father were not the only strange things reported in the wake of the encounter. His daughter also experienced strange things afterwards. Something seemed to follow her back to her home in Connecticut. There, in the home she shared with three college friends, she experienced a plethora of paranormal events. Her roommates began reporting episodes of awakening to see dark, shadowy figures standing over their beds, heavy footsteps ascending and descending the stairs, and bizarre poltergeist activity. This activity went on for over two years in the Connecticut household after Ron Becker's Blue Orb incident. And this brings us to a phenomenon that has been reported by people who have visited Skinwalker Ranch. Sometimes strange, even dangerous things seem to start happening to them at home after they had visited the site. The tendency of strange things to follow people home has been termed the hitchhiker effect. In a January 2021 interview with journalist George Knapp, Robert Bigelow described this phenomenon. I got very disturbed toward the end about something that happened to some of the government people. And I realized... Uh, Hitchhikers. Um, well, yeah. That, you know, and so hitchhikers being that you take, you take things home with you. Everybody took things home with them. You I did. took things to my house. Things happened to my wife and, and to me and different, different things. So everybody took things home. We all, you know, we did, but we didn't know that, gee, it was like going to be kind of permanent. <laughs> you know, we didn't accept, we didn't know that, you know, that it's going to stay with you for maybe the, for years and years or the rest of your life. Who knows? Um, 
But the ones that, that bothered me a lot were where anybody got hurt or really disturbed. And it does, not that it happened, happened on the ranch. It was when they left the ranch, as you say, hitchhikers. And these were government people and affected them. Very and, dramatic ways, though. Very dramatic ways. So Bigelow indicates that even though he and his wife had also experienced it, he was very disturbed by the way the hitchhiker effect was harming some of the government employees who worked on the project. He says that this was especially a concern towards the end of the time that he owned Skinwalker Ranch, and it was one of the reasons he sold it to Brandon Fugal, who is the current owner. The 2005 Oregon experience we heard about gives us a sense of what can happen after a Blue Orb encounter. And Becker's daughter seemed to experience something that followed her home, like the hitchhiker effect. But it didn't involve people who had visited Skinwalker Ranch. Can you give us examples that did? The book Skinwalkers at the Pentagon contains multiple examples of the hitchhiker effect, but here we'll concentrate on examples that involve the blue orbs specifically. I should point out that not everybody was harmed as a result of the reported hitchhikers. Bigelow himself indicated that he hadn't been hurt uh, or his wife. It's just some strange things started occurring in their home, apparently as a result of visiting the ranch. The journalist he was speaking with, George Knapp, also had hitchhikers, including blue orbs, but they didn't hurt him and his wife. Skinwalkers at the Pentagon states, Before and after the OSAP bass investigations on Skinwalker Ranch, George Knapp made several visits to Skinwalker Ranch, some lasting overnight. Subsequent to the trips, Knapp reported that his wife experienced multiple apparitions in their home, including sightings of blue orbs outside the window of their place in Las Vegas. But there were some people, especially in the military, that reported hitchhikers who were harmed, uh, either themselves or members of their families. The Bass investigation of the ranch ran between 2008 and 2010. And in July 2009, two members of the team visited the ranch who were referred to in Skinwalkers at the Pentagon as Jim Costigan and Jonathan Axelrod. Both of these names appear to be pseudonyms to protect their privacy. Jim Costigan apparently has nothing to do with Jim Corrigan, who is the supernatural superhero known as the Spectre in DC Comics. And despite what you might guess, Jonathan Axelrod apparently is not the same person referred to as Mr. Axelrod in Ingo Swan's book Penetration about remote viewing aliens on the moon, which we discussed back in episodes 117 and 118. At least, I have no evidence that this Mr. Axelrod is the same as that Mr. Axelrod. I've even been told the apparent real name of this Jonathan Axelrod, and I find the claim credible because it's a pretty small community of people and it wouldn't be super difficult to guess. But I haven't confirmed it, and I don't want to violate his and his family's privacy, so we won't be going into that. In any event, these two guys, who the book calls Jim Costigan and Jonathan Axelrod, both visited Skinwalker Ranch in July of 2009 and apparently had strange phenomena follow them home, including blue orbs. The book reports that sometime around August 2009, Jonathan Axelrod made a phone call in which he reported a blue orb hitchhiker visiting his family home in Virginia. On several occasions, Axelrod had been out of town. Axelrod reported that while he was on one mission overseas, his 16-year-old son, Paul, 
woke at night with multiple small blue orbs flying around his room. Occasionally, one would fly very close to him. According to Paul, the orbs appeared to be moving under some kind of control. When he began yelling, his mother ran in the room, but the orbs were instantly gone. And the book says within a few months, everyone in the Axelrod family had seen things like this. The next month, September of 2009, the other person who had visited the ranch, Jim Costigan, had an encounter with the blue orbs also. His wife was also present, and she would go on to experience health problems. They lived in a suburban area in the state of Maryland, which for our overseas listeners is very far from Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, but very close to Jonathan Axelrod's home in the neighboring state of Virginia. On a balmy September evening, Costigan, his wife Layla, and their dog left their home just after 10 p.m. for their nightly two-mile dog walk. It was slightly humid and quite warm, but all three were enjoying the leisurely stroll around the quiet suburb. It was late enough that most of their neighbors were indoors. What the heck is that? murmured Layla. She had stopped walking and was fixating on something she had seen over Costigan's left shoulder. He turned and took in a sharp breath. About 20 yards away, a blue orb was moving in their direction. It was no more than six feet off the ground, bright blue, softball-sized, and completely silent. So very consistent with the others that we've heard about. Without warning, it accelerated and quickly shot between them, barely grazing Layla's shoulder as it passed. She did not feel the fast-moving object as it passed, but Costigan was certain it was no more than an inch from Layla's shoulder. The orb continued in a straight line and within seconds was lost behind a house. Their do dog appeared not to have noticed the orb. Which is a bit unusual, though there could have been any number of reasons for it. The dog may have been old and had dull sight and hearing, or it may have had its nose to the ground, obsessively sniffing the chemical socialization that dogs leave for each other at dog walk sites, or the orb may have simply come upon them too fast. And, as with Ron Becker, there were health effects. He and Layla both slept late the day following their blue orb encounter. When she got up, Layla observed that her body hurt. She had a headache and was experiencing flu symptoms. It was a given in the family that the superbly athletic and very fit Layla simply never got sick. Costigan left for work promising to check with Layla later in the day. But he couldn't reach her when he called, and when he got home, he found her lying listlessly in bed with no energy and a severe headache. In the days that followed, Layla called in sick and took some flu medicine, but her symptoms persisted. And these symptoms persisted for a long time, so they went to the doctor, and the doctor did lots of blood work. At the meeting with her primary physician, Costigan could tell that the doctor was at a loss to explain what had happened to his wife. After dozens of additional doctor visits, including neurologists, immunologists, and other specialists, Layla's constellation of bizarre symptoms was eventually diagnosed. She had Hashimoto's thyroiditis an autoimmune disease in which the immune system attacks the thyroid gland. His wife has been on medication ever since. Meanwhile, in nearby Virginia, the Axelrods continued to have medical problems. The Axelrod family also suffered health effects, with the wife suffering flare-ups of lupus and Raynaud's disease. Both Axelrod teenagers also suffered intense flu-like symptoms at different times, following anomalies in their home, with the most serious medical symptoms occurring in the younger teenager, after being attacked on the night of February 7th, 2011, by blue and red orbs in his bedroom. 
So here's what happened in February of 2011 when Mrs. Axelrod came to wake up one of her teenagers. Paul, the younger boy, slept very badly that night. In fact, when his mother Ruth went into Paul's room on the morning of February 8th, she had great difficulty waking him up. She became worried and noticed that her son appeared to be extremely angry. He refused to wake up fully, saying repeatedly, They kept me up all night. When he was finally awake, Ruth saw with alarm that Paul's eyes were red and very puffy. His face appeared swollen with several angry red welts on his cheeks. Even more disturbing, his mother saw multiple bright red contusions on his stomach and chest, as if somebody had repeatedly and forcibly hit the boy. By this time, the entire family were in Paul's room, concerned that something serious was amiss. Paul was interviewed several times over the phone during the following two weeks. He also had a face-to-face -face meeting with the BAS-contracted physician, Dr. Black. So here's what Paul said happened. Paul had gone to sleep quickly after going to bed, but had been awakened by a bright light in his room. The first visitors were a pair of blue orbs that cast a bright light through the room as they flew near the bedroom ceiling. Paul watched with apprehension as they flew near him, sometimes skimming him lightly. Paul's next memory was awakening to two small red orbs flying near the ceiling in addition to the blue orbs, and they too appeared to dive at him repeatedly, causing the terrified teenager to hide under the bed covers. This cycle unfolded several times with the boy dozing fitfully. As the night wore on, Paul began feeling pain on different parts of his skin as the orbs brushed past him. When asked why he did not yell for help, Paul replied that he had tried, but he did not seem to be able to yell. Later that morning, the family linked the angry red welts on the boy's torso, neck, face, and arms to the close proximity of the orbs. And Paul reported something else that was very strange. Paul also complained that two or three black shadow humanoid figures were in his room throughout the night, and that they were screaming as if they were being tortured and in a lot of pain. Paul, who was partially deaf, said the screaming from the figures took place telepathically in his head. He never saw the faces of the shadowy figures. So the orbs in this case appeared to be associated with these other figures, which Paul interpreted as being in pain like he was. Do we have a summary of the kind of health conditions people who had blue orb or other hitchhiker encounters came down with? We do, but without a great deal of detail about the particulars. Here in the United States, we have a law known as the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. It was passed in 1996 and signed into law by President Bill Clinton. Among other things, HIPAA contains rather strict provisions regarding patient privacy, so the authors of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon write, Without breaking medical confidentiality and HIPAA, it can be unequivocally stated that a large number of people who brought something home from Skinwalker Ranch also began to experience autoimmune disease in one or more family or household members. These autoimmune diseases include Graves' disease, thyroid, Sjogren's syndrome, salivary and tear glands, Hashimoto thyroiditis, thyroid, rheumatoid arthritis, joints, and lupus, heart, lung, muscle. These conditions weren't all produced by Blue Orb encounters, but the investigators did find a commonality of people having disorders with their immune systems after they or members of their family had visited Skinwalker Ranch. Hmm. 
All right. So before we get to our theories and faith and reason perspectives, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Kevin B., Jeff K., Robert K., Mark V., and Reese T. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, what theories do we need to consider about the blue orbs? We need to consider three general types of theories. First, whether there's anything here to investigate. Second, what normal explanations might there be for the blue orbs? And third, what paranormal explanations might there be for them? What do you mean by the first category, whether there's anything here to investigate? We always need to consider the possibility that unusual reports do not correspond to anything that exists in reality. Uh, This would lead us to consider things like the reports are due to imagination or mental illness or hoax. If the reports do correspond to something in reality, what would normal explanations for it be? Here we'd want to consider what normal or natural explanations there are for the things that the orbs were reported to do. And this would include light-based phenomena such as will-o'-the-wisps. And yes, that means the infamous swamp gas explanation. Also cold flames, earthquake lights, and ball lightning. And what about paranormal explanations? Here we would consider things like ghosts, demons, interdimensional creatures, and advanced technological devices being built either by humans or somebody else. All right. So what can we say about the blue orbs from the reason perspective? Is there anything here to investigate? I think there is. Uh, The proposals that would say there isn't don't really fit the evidence that we have at hand. Uh, The people who reported encounters with blue orbs aren't reporting a purely subjective experience, but one that leaves physical traces behind, and that would rule out imagination. Uh, We also don't have evidence that the people involved were suffering from psychological illnesses, certainly not ones that were severe enough to cause hallucinations. And it's particularly noteworthy when we have encounters that were witnessed by more than one person, such as the two Shermans or uh, Sherman and his nephew Stephen or Ron Becker and his daughter or George Knapp and his wife. Collective psychologically induced hallucinations really aren't a thing, so I don't see good evidence for mental illness as an explanation. What about hoaxing? Could everybody involved just be lying? It's not logically impossible, but it's also not probable. In the first place, I'm not aware of any evidence of hoaxing in these reports, and you can't just attribute something to a hoax because you don't want to investigate it. You need evidence of a hoax if you're going to make that accusation. And in this case, I think there's evidence against hoaxing because the blue orbs were the subject of government contracts to investigate them. And you're taking a big risk if you're hoaxing the government. You can get fined and go to jail and things like that. Uh, 
In Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, they have an appendix that lists the reports Bass filed with the Defense Intelligence Agency, along with the dates they were turned in, how many pages they were, and what they covered, and multiple reports involved the Blue Orbs. So that would involve filing false intelligence reports, a serious crime in the United States, if Bass or other people were hoaxing this. Then there's the fact that Bass collected the medical records of the people involved, and the records apparently did show serious, sudden-onset health problems after reported encounters with the Blue Orbs in multiple cases. You could dismiss any particular Blue Orb encounter as a hoax, but it's hard to dismiss the overall pattern as a series of hoaxes, so I think we need to take it seriously, at least provisionally. Then let's look at the natural uh, explanations for the phenomena. What do we need to say here? The first thing is that we shouldn't necessarily assume that the blue orbs are all the same thing. Uh, Something they stress in paranormal field investigation classes is that you need to consider each phenomenon separately because there may be more than one explanation for what's being reported. In fact, uh, my uh, field investigations professor at the Rhine Education Center was of the opinion that even when you have a case, where something paranormal is happening, there's also usually some purely natural phenomena that the witnesses have misidentified as paranormal, because after you encounter one paranormal thing, you're primed to interpret other things that way, too. So we should be on the alert for things that can indicate that the blue orbs have more than one explanation. For example, Mr. Sherman said that the orb that killed his dogs looked like a physical object, like it was made out of glass and had liquid bubbling or sloshing inside of it. But the orb that Ron Becker encountered went through his body, which physical orbs can't do, at least not normally. Now, maybe this was some exotic tech, that could either be solid or insubstantial, or maybe there are two different explanations for these orbs and they have different causes. What about the natural light phenomena you mentioned? How well do they explain what's reported about the orbs? Depending on the type of light phenomena, they actually explain rather a lot of it. Let's start by looking at Will-o'-the-Wisps. Here's a description of the phenomenon written in 1891 by the anthropologist John Owen. This is a name that is sometimes applied to a phenomenon perhaps more frequently called Jack-of-the-Lantern or Will-o'-the-Wisp. It seems to be a ball of fire varying in size from that of a candle flame to that of a man's head. It is generally observed in damp, marshy places moving to and fro, but it has been known to stand perfectly still and send off scintillations. As you approach it, it will move on, keeping just beyond your reach. If you retire, it will follow you. Notice how much that sounds like the blue orbs that the Shermans encountered. They appeared as glowing balls. They were between the size of a baseball and two to three times the size of a baseball. So that fits with the size description of between the size of a candle flame and the size of a man's head. And when the dogs approached them, they alternately retreated from the dogs and then came back and got close to them again, just like Will-o'-the-Wisps are said to retreat from you and stay out of your reach, but then follow you when you pull back. And on another occasion, the Shermans saw a blue orb approach them and stand still and hover, like Will-o'-the-Wisps are said to do sometimes, to just stand still and throw off scintillations. And even though Skinwalker Ranch isn't one big marsh, 
it does have standing water on the property, as well as decaying organic matter from plants and animals on the ranch. What is thought to explain will-o'-the-wisps, and why would they retreat in advance based on your movements? The standard explanation is that they're produced by gases, including phosphine, disphosphine, and methane. These gases are produced by organic decaying matter, like cow and horse dung that you'd find on a ranch. Phosphine and diphosphine both contain element 15, or phosphorus, which has the property of burning when it comes in contact with element 8, or oxygen. So these two gases might spontaneously catch fire and start burning a pocket of methane gas. It's also possible that will-o'-the-wisps can be touched off by the piezoelectric effect. This occurs when materials like rock with quartz or other crystal structures in it get squeezed, and the mechanical stress on the rock produces electricity. You'll recall how Sherman's nephew Stephen said he remembered the blue orb coming from a bunch of rocks, so maybe some of those rocks were under stress, and it was what touched off a pocket of methane. But... Whatever might have touched it off, methane, very noticeably, can burn blue. And natural gas, like the kind used in gas stoves, contains methane, which is why your gas stove burns with a blue flame. But in the wild, a pocket of burning gas may be carried by air currents, and when that happens, it's sensitive to the motion of the air. So you suddenly approach it like a dog lunging at it, and the upward push of the dog's body may create an air current that pushes away the will-o'-the-wisp. And then when the leaping dog goes back down, that creates an air current in the other direction, pulling the will-o'-the-wisp back, making it look like it's advancing and retreating with your body movements and making it look like it's teasing your dogs. What about Tom Sherman's impression that the object was made of glass and had one or more blue liquids bubbling or mixing in it? This encounter occurred in the evening in low lighting conditions. And as your eyes adjust to light sources in dim light, there can be optical illusions. It's possible that his brain interpreted the shining light as a glass object, since one of the key things that make glass look like glass is that it's shiny. The perception of one or more liquids could be different densities of burning gas within the pocket, and the scintillations that will-o'-the-wisps can emit could contribute to the impression of a reflective surface with a bubbling liquid inside. What about the death of the dogs? Could will-o'-the-wisps cause that? A problem is that we have conflicting accounts of how the dogs apparently died. Will-o'-the-wisps would not crush them, but since they're burning gas, they could set the dog's coats of fur on fire. And once the dogs were down, the fire could spread out from their bodies, creating burned or desiccated circles around them. The difficulty that occurs to me here is how fast the dogs apparently died. Normally, if a dog caught on fire, you would expect it to run around, uh, even to run back to its master in hopes of getting help. But the dogs seem to die really quickly. Is there another light phenomenon that could cause the dogs to die suddenly? One that occurs to me is ball lightning. This is a phenomenon that we don't really understand well because it's rare, but ball lightning... Uh, is, as you would expect, lightning that appears in the form of a ball, an orb, 
and that's well reported. We may have a future episode devoted to ball lightning. Here's a summary from Wikipedia of what witnesses report about how ball lightning can appear and act. Descriptions of ball lightning vary widely. It has been described as moving up and down, sideways, or in unpredictable trajectories, hovering and moving with or against the wind, attracted to, unaffected by, or repelled from buildings, people, cars, and other objects. This corresponds to the way the blue orbs have been described to move, including horizontal motion, up and down motion, hovering, and being alternately attracted to or repelled by objects like the dogs leaping for them and then falling back, causing them to be pushed by air currents. That can happen with ball lightning, too. Some accounts describe it as moving through solid masses of wood or metal without effect, while others describe it as destructive and melting or burning those substances. This corresponds to how it passed through Ron Becker's body. If it can pass through solid masses of wood and metal, it could also pass through a human body. Its appearance has also been linked to power lines, altitudes of 300 meters or 1,000 feet and higher, and during thunderstorms and calm weather. Skinwalker Ranch has an elevation of more than 1,000 feet above sea level, and in the reported cases, the orbs have been seen in calm weather. Ball lightning has been described as transparent, translucent, multicolored, evenly lit, radiating flames, filaments, or sparks, with shapes that vary between spheres, ovals, teardrops, rods, or discs. The orbs are reported as being spherical, and Mr. Sherman thought that he saw one that was translucent, and the bubbling or mixing liquid he thought it contained could have been related to the filaments or sparks that ball lightning can have. Accounts also vary on their alleged danger to humans, from lethal to harmless. Some of the blue orbs have reportedly caused health problems in, human and they, in humans, and they have reportedly been lethal to dogs. A review of the available literature published in 1972 identified the properties of a typical ball lightning, while ca whilst cautioning against over-reliance on eyewitness accounts. Their diameters range from 1 to 100 centimeters, 0.4 to 40 inches, most commonly 10 to 20 centimeters, 4 to 8 inches. The blue orbs have been reported as being between 4 and 9 inches and between 7 and 22 centimeters, which is the most commonly reported size of ball lightning. A wide range of colors has been observed, red, orange, and yellow being the most common. Ball lightning is reported to come in blue, which is the color we're focusing on here, but the blue orbs have been seen in proximity with red, white, and yellow orbs, which are the most common colors for ball lightning. So maybe it's just different colorations of the same phenomenon. The lifetime of each event is from one second to over a minute, with the brightness remaining fairly constant during that time. We don't have good timing estimates for how long the orbs last, but some accounts suggest over a minute. They tend to move at a few meters per second, most often in a horizontal direction, but may also move vertically, remain stationary, or wander erratically. Again, consistent with the described motions of the blue orbs. It is rare that observers report the sensation of heat, although in some cases the disappearance of the ball is accompanied by the liberation of heat. The human witnesses didn't report sensations of heat around the orbs, but there may have been a release of heat with uh, the one that killed the dogs. Some display an affinity for metal objects and may move along conductors such as wires or metal fences.
This could explain why the orb seemed to swerve towards Ron Becker's car, which was made of metal and moving at a high rate of speed down the road, an estimated 85 miles per hour, which could have helped it build up an electrical charge rubbing against the air. Also, if the orbs were ball lightning, they could have been blowing around in the wind when Ron Becker's daughter saw them, or they could have been interacting electromagnetically with each other or with the electrical currents in the wind. In fact, whirlwinds like dust devils have electrical properties caused by the particles in the air becoming electrically charged through contact or friction. And so this electrical effect could uh, explain why several orbs of ball lightning could appear to be playing with each other, like the daughter reported. You brought up ball lightning as a way to explain the apparently sudden deaths of the dogs. How would that work? If the three dogs were simultaneously trying to attack the blue orb, they could have been physically bunched together and in contact with each other. Then one of them makes contact with the orb and, being an electrical phenomenon, it electrocutes them and kills them. Or even if the dogs aren't in physical contact with each other, the electricity from the bursting ball could arc to and connect with each of them, producing electrocution. Simultaneously, it could release heat, and the burning plasma the ball lightning is made of could set the dog's coats on fire, resulting in their burned appearance and the circles around them. Also, if it set off the wick effect, like we discussed in episode 149 on spontaneous human combustion, so much of their bodies may have been consumed that they could have looked like they'd been smushed into the ground. Are there other indicators that the blue orbs could have been ball lightning? Mr. Sherman thought he heard one of them making an electrical crackling sound, so that fits with there being an electrical phenomenon. And so does the way the house lights and the yard lights at the ranch dimmed when the blue orb went by. That's definitely suggestive of an electrical phenomenon. Since the lights dimmed, you might think that the orb was somehow pulling electricity out of the the wiring. Is that a realistic possibility? Not with any human technology that I'm aware of. The orb was floating in the air, so it wasn't grounded, and you wouldn't expect it to be able to bleed electricity from the lighting systems. But I thought of some explanations that could possibly account for this if it was just ball lightning, and I talked to my brother about them. He's an engineer, uh, specifically a mechanical engineer, so he's had electrical engineering classes, even though... He's not an electrical engineer specifically, and he and I agreed that there were two explanations that seemed most probable if this was ball lightning. First, as the ball goes by, it puts electricity into the wiring, causing the lights to momentarily brighten. The Shermans don't notice that, but they do notice it when the ball moves on and the added power goes away, causing the lights to dim. Then, since this is in the evening, their eyes readjust to the lighting level, making it seem like the lights return to normal brightness. So that would explain why really it got brighter, but then when it went back to normal, it seemed dimmer, and then when their eyes adjusted, it seemed normal again. Second, as the ball of lightning goes by, it puts power into the electrical system, and it puts enough power into the electrical system that the circuit breakers start to trip to prevent an electrical overload, like when your lights dim during a thunderstorm because a power line has been hit and the circuit breakers start to kick in to prevent an overload. 
So I think there are ways to explain the light's dimming without resorting to exotic technology. Are there any arguments you can think of against the blue orbs just being ordinary ball lightning? One is that you wouldn't expect ordinary ball lightning to call to cause Ron Becker's medical condition. He initially displayed symptoms of radiation sickness, followed by a cancer that's very rare in men, and that's strongly suggestive of his system suffering a radiation insult. And if ball lightning is just electrical in nature, you wouldn't expect it to produce ionizing radiation. Ionizing radiation is radiation that will knock electrons off of an atom, turning it into a different ion. And ionizing radiation is what gives you radiation sickness. However, we don't understand how ball lightning works. True, and I can't think of ways that it might produce ionizing radiation. In the first place, it may contain atoms of something radioactive, because ball lightning is made of matter that comes from its environment. In 2014, a study published in China found that a lightning ball that they saw through a spectroscope contained elements like silicon, iron, calcium, and other things. So hypothetically, an individual ball could pick up atoms of something highly radioactive. But more to the point, regular lightning produces X-rays and gamma rays, which are ionizing radiation. And it turns out that it produces, regular lightning produces these for longer than scientists used to think. We'll have a link to where you can read about that. Now, an ordinary flash of lightning happens very quickly, but ball lightning can last minutes. So if it's churning out ionizing radiation during that time, and one of them swoops through your body, it's hypothetically possible you might get a big enough dose to cause radiation sickness. So even that might be explained by ball lightning. What's the best argument you could make against ball lightning? Ball lightning is rare, and even if Skinwalker Ranch had a unique set of natural conditions that make it prone to ball lightning, thus explaining the different colored lights on the property, you wouldn't expect ball lightning to follow people home, like Jim Corrigan and Jonathan Axelrod and their dwellings on the East Coast, or even to follow George Knapp to his home in Las Vegas. Ordinary ball lightning would not do that, nor would it be associated with other hitchhiker phenomena that it was reported with. That would suggest that whatever's causing the orbs, and even if they are ball lightning, it's connected to another phenomenon that is responsible for the hitchhikers. Would this phenomenon need to be intelligent? Not necessarily. Things can follow you home without having human-level intelligence. You can go on a trip and get a germ that you come back with and infect other people in your house, and germs aren't intelligent. Similarly, you can go out and meet, and meet a dog, and the dog can follow you home, and dogs don't have human intelligence. But some of the phenomena reported at Skinwalker Ranch, like humanoid-appearing beings reportedly using technology would seem to display qualities of intelligence, so we should consider this hypothesis. Then let's look at the blue orbs from the faith perspective. Could they be ghosts? In the past, orb-like lights were often assumed to be manifestations of ghosts, but I don't see any evidence of that here. In particular, the key criterion needed to diagnose a ghost, a personality that you can communicate and interact with, 
doesn't seem to be present. The orbs act like natural phenomena or devices of some kind, and they don't fit the classic profile of a ghostly apparition. What about demons? Could they be demons? We talked about the criteria needed to diagnose demons in episode 188, and they're not met here. The blue orbs may be frightening, dangerous, and unexplained, but there are lots of things in the world that are frightening, dangerous, and unexplained without being demons, so those are not good tests. To diagnose a demon, you need things like an alternative personality manifesting through a person, the person shows preternatural knowledge or strength, it shows an aversion to holy things like prayer, sacraments, or pictures of Jesus or Mary, and it preaches doctrinal errors like encouraging people to worship other gods or curse Jesus. None of those things are present in this case. We have some scary reports of things people maybe saw in dreams, but we don't have any of the classic demon symptoms. So it would be unsupported superstition to leap to the demon hypothesis in the case of the blue orbs. Okay, then let's go back to the reason perspective. What else could explain the blue orbs? Some kind of physical intelligence, either human or non-human. They could be artificially produced versions of some natural phenomenon like ball lightning, or they could be lighter-than-air probes of some kind, or they could be heavier-than-air drones. I'm not aware of us having technology to do all the things the blue orbs, orbs are reported to do. It's possible we do have such technology and it's highly classified. Or it's possible that some of the accounts of orb encounters are exaggerated or inaccurate, making them seem like technology we don't have when really we do. However, it's also possible that they are the product of somebody else's technology, including extraterrestrials, time travelers, interdimensionals, or others. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the blue panic orbs? I have no idea what the blue orbs are or who's responsible for them. I think the balance of probability supports this being a real phenomenon that is worthy of investigation, but... A great many of the things the blue orbs are reported to do could be explained by natural phenomena such as will-o'-the-wisps and ball lightning. On the other hand, their association with the hitchhiker phenomenon could point to them being artificial, either artificially produced natural phenomena or some kind of technology either belonging to us or someone else. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer on this topic? We'll have a link to the original book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, and the brand new book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Also, Jeremy Corbell's documentary, Hunt for the Skinwalker, and the Secrets of Skinwalker Ranch TV show. We'll also have articles on Skinwalker Ranch, acute radiation syndrome, an interview with Bob Bigelow, where he talks about hitchhikers, will-o'-the-wisps, the piezoelectric effect, ball lightning, and also information about how lightning produces both X and gamma rays. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, uh, since we're talking about this kind of weird stuff that may be from aliens or people think may be from aliens, I thought I'd have an outer space theme for our headlines today. Um, recently on the show, I mentioned that kind of one of my bucket list items that I'd love to have happen during my lifetime. I have several of these, but one of them is I'd love to see a daytime supernova. 
And, well, there's good news. There could be a daytime supernova any time now. And um, maybe not, but there could be. And so we'll have an article from Nature about uh, how there could be, there are some good candidates for local supernovas that we could see from Earth, either in the night sky with the naked eye or even during the daytime. But um, regardless of what happens with that, you know, we have been talking about life on Mars and how it might be microbial and how it could get here to Earth because we're going to be bringing back some rocks, hopefully. And and there's also an argument that we're not yet prepared for cross-world contamination. So check out this article about the uh, state of our readiness for dealing with cross-world contamination and what we need to do to get ready. Excellent. All right. So, folks, that's it for us today. What are your theories? We want to hear them about the blue panic orbs and the reports of what they do. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619 738 4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they've been doing on Mysterious World. Uh, if you haven't seen that yet, go by youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken and be sure and check out all the great work they've been doing to improve the video version of Mysterious World. And also while you're there, uh, please do uh, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell notification so that you get uh, alerts whenever we have a new video. Uh, we just recently passed 25,000 uh, subscribers on the channel, and I'm really trying to grow it. So I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, this month we have a kind of chain of episodes going. We started with uh, the ghost bride, the ghost weddings, which involves the human afterlife. And then we talked about the green children. And now we talked about the blue orbs that apparently killed Tom Sherman's dog. And that raises the question of whether animals have afterlives and whether dogs really do go to heaven. So there's more to say about that subject than you might think. And we'll be talking about the animal possibility of animal afterlife next week. Excellent. Very good. Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash stargate.